life is not all puppies and lollipops. We all have hiccups in our life. And it's what we do with those hiccups, how we handle it. The stories we tell ourselves as people, as teams, as organizations, you know, they often get in the way of the changes we want to make in the world. We actually need to propel our stories forward, not hold us back. This is Unstop the Story, where we're looking at how amazing people and companies are being resilient, flexible, brave, and daring in the face of an ever-changing landscape. And we'll talk about how you can do it too. Welcome to Unstop the Story with Unstoppable Tracy. One of them doesn't have a head, answers this mischievous, weathered Nepalese porter who had been traveling with me. You know, my witty acquaintance, shall we call him, was responding to a local villager. That's how I start out my chapter five in my book, Unstoppable You, She's Coming Around the Bend. This week, we have an extraordinary difference maker in the wish man. And I learned anything is possible, wishes around the world, or surviving and getting through the rough storming phases of all this change in the pandemic in our households, in our workplaces, in our teams. I recall trekking in Nepal in 1991 like it was yesterday. You know, there's this vivid memory right after I crossed the Modaikola River. And it's the river in Nepal. It's about 840 feet above the water, this bridge. And it's a suspension bridge. And there it is missing planks. There are rickety, rotting tracks. There are missing planks. There is suspension lines left and right, the grab lines that are way over my head because I'm super short when my legs are off, way beyond my reach. And I was walking on my stumps, right? I didn't have my legs. And my heart was going ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum right after I crossed this windy swinging bridge on that Modaikola River. And so the last thing I felt like doing after I crossed the bridge was going for a rest. And the rest of my group, they were all resting. And so I took this adrenaline and carried on. And this porter from our group had been around me for nine days. And they were not far behind me. And they followed me. And they saw this farmer. And this farmer was more like a walking hay bale, had spindly legs protruding out the bottom. It was a real shock to me to see how much he was carrying. It's like 10 times his weight. Well, it turns out, you know, I was a shock too, I guess, seeing me without my arms and my legs. And so this flabbergasted, time-worn old farmer turned to the porter friend I had made after traveling with me for nine days or so. He says very cheekily, he says, if this one looks like that... And he was pointing to me without my arms, without my legs. What do the rest of them look like? So the porter answered, one of them doesn't have a head. (laughs) 
It's so ridiculous. One of them doesn't have a head. So, you know, the whole group, we all kind of laughed. And it was the Nepalese student traveling with me that was translating all of this. And, you know, the fact that this porter could joke because we had been traveling together. And that travel time, those nine days together, shed some light for him on what people with disabilities could really do. Why he could make such a joke. There was a huge leap in breaking down the stereotypes that had come from very real conditions of an impoverished Nepal. You know, the porter came to this new place of understanding where he could joke, you know, get this idea, right? Perceived notions in Nepal that he overcame, right? People with disabilities, they're not prioritized because they're not seen as able to contribute. You know, for example, they were assumed they were not able to work in the rice terraced fields or not able to help maintain the village. They treat people with disabilities and all the people the same way as feeding the animals, you know, super practical. So to stretch the food out, they feed like one donkey. They decorate him and bells and whistles and colorful saddle. And so all of the other donkeys, they all follow the sounds. And if they're hungry or not, right, they're attracted to the colors and the sounds. So, as you know, or can gather, food in Nepal is so scarce. They don't share it freely with people who are disabled because they don't feel like there's enough to share. So Nepalese people with disabilities, they don't have the legislation, the awareness, or the access to technology that will make their lives easier, you know, such as artificial limbs for me or a high-tech wheelchair. So... I travel wearing my legs, but the Nepalese, they're surprisingly resourceful. They figure it out. A great piece of wood becomes a crutch, but yet they still are not fed equal amounts. And so as sad as it sounds, the people with disabilities, they're left to die. Well, you know, and I know, valuable contributor, helping pilot strikes, busting Uber into Canada, and helping over 100 million people fill their souls with that kindergarten story. But in Nepal, they don't know that. So it was a novelty. So as soon as the villagers heard that this four-way amputee was coming around, people gathered from far and wide to try to meet me on the trail. It was really wacky. And so by working together for nine days, we broke down those barriers. And I realized if this could happen in Nepal... This could happen anywhere. Kind of like my guest, you know, Frank Shankowicz, Make-A-Wish Foundation. He's somebody that was kidnapped at six, re-abandoned at 12, almost died years later. And now he is the Make-A-Wish, Wishman movie that you're all watching on Netflix, Wishman movie. But he's Make-A-Wish Foundation all around the world, like on top of sending children with a short lifespan to Walt Disney because that's their dream. He makes wishes come true everywhere for children's lives that are impacted. And so I learned in Nepal, we could, with an authentic view, a valuable contributor way, increase awareness and acceptance of people everywhere. And this month is Black Lives Matter with the Black History Month. And March 8th is Women's Day for whether you're male or female. And 
all year round, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, plus, plus. You know, all of us, we can break down stereotypes by being together that happen in Nepal over food, for example, with me after nine days of trekking, it can happen anywhere. We all go through stages together, you know? So in our family, there's a forming stage. If there's a new sibling or a new member or in-laws come to move in with us. And during COVID, there's technology changes and there's heightened epidemic requirements. There's new relationships with people on Zoom instead of being face-to-face. And in our teams, we have new ways of working, new team members, lifelong team members retiring. So this forming stage, that throws us all back. Whatever the changes throws us back into forming. It's kind of like children that want to seek approval of their parents. Those opinions matter. But then the relationship, the journey of a family relationship or a business relationship or a team dynamic in the workplace is kind of like teenagers in the storming phase, right? They've been dependent for a long time on direction. And then as a teenager, they start to become independent, more capable. And so they need to assert themselves from their parents. So that's where you see some of that storming. Or when Air Canada and Canadian Airlines came together and it was like, okay, who's working what position on the gate? There was storming and tension with new hires or people from Canadian Airlines versus Air Canada and who's going to do what. But people that were 30-year veterans, they were pretty great at the storming phase. They just treated it like decision-making. They would be like, okay, who's going to work the gate? Who's going to check passports? Who's going to check security? Right? They would just ask the questions of what was needed and then delegate those roles. So it wasn't really all that storming. Their storming phase was just a bunch of decision-making with useful questions, right? Focusing on what was needed rather than what the problems were. And so the storming phase lets people decide who does what. And you want results as leaders and listeners and peers and parents. Ask those questions. And so how do we lead people to self-discovery, inquiry, investigation, and do a lot of listening? So that those probing questions are like celebrating people and not questions that are, are you working the gate? Yes or no? Or did you walk the dog? Yes or no? Or I've got a Zoom. Do you have a Zoom? Because there's only so much bandwidth for five different people in a household to all be on their important meetings, whether it's school meetings or work meetings, for example. So what we're looking for is more of those open-ended questions of So what's really important for you on the upcoming conversations, right? Rather than, is that important? Yes or no? Because everybody's going to say yes, their conversation is yes. So how can we ask open-ended questions? And that's what's useful in those storming phases. So I encourage you all to look back on your positive leaders. Who was super effective? First, effective at that forming, getting people to know each other, get started, start to work together faster. Because at first, everybody's kind of like, oh, I do that too. And oh, I have dogs as well. Or yes, I love living outside of the city. And those kind of forming positive, like-minded ways. But then it very goes from always, inevitably, not because your team's bad, not because of COVID. It's natural. There's forming, storming, norming, and then performing. How do you get people from the forming stage 
through to storming. Don't skip storming. You can't skip storming. It's inevitable. But how do you turn it into decision-making what works so that you can get into norming faster and outperforming what you're looking for? And think of those leaders that are great at jumping into the forming and then moving great teams and families and new variables like bandwidth or a new pet or a new team member or a new technology, all this digital dexterity impacting all our storming phases, which is inevitable. How do we get people through that appreciative inquiry, focus on what works questioning and think of your role models and write down three characteristics that were really positive that got people through storming, inevitable storming into norming and outperforming, right? It's not a bad thing. Storming is part of the journey. And we repeat forming, storming, norming, and performing over and over. Every time there's a new member, a new technology, somebody leaves, some new variable. And so somebody that has dealt with change over and over and over and remained an extraordinary difference maker is our incredible Frank Shankowich. This man is the founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation, making dreams come true for children with terminal illnesses and impacts on their lives. And he himself kidnapped and then abandoned again at 12, kidnapped at six, abandoned at 12, almost died in his first career as a police officer, been a veteran over and over. And even on his deathbed, when he's going to recovery, he donated his time to help someone else that was terminal share and love his bike and give him a dream come true. And then a couple days later, pass away. And that was the birth of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Listen in to his story and his tips. It's going to just leave you wowed beyond belief. Thank you for listening to the first half of Unstop the Story with Unstoppable Tracy. Stay tuned for Frank Shankowich with Make-A-Wish Foundation for a story that's just going to drop your jaw through the floor right after these messages. Unstoppable Tracy is going to be back in just a moment with Frank Shankowich to talk about his incredible story. My name is Megan Doherty, and I've had the pleasure of working with Unstoppable Tracy to co-create Unstop the Story, which you're listening to now. One Stone Creative is a podcast and online course creation agency, and we love to help plan, build, and distribute podcasts that tell important stories while working towards key business objectives. We especially love working with authors like Unstoppable Tracy and have a special book-to-podcast program designed to help nonfiction authors transform their books into valuable multimedia podcasts. If you have a book or a story and you want to bring it to the world in a new format, find us at onestonecreative.net. That's O-N-E, stonecreative.net. Now, here are Tracy and Frank. Welcome to Unstop the Story. I am delighted and so excited to be hosting Frank Shankwitz, who is best known as the creator and co-founder and first president and CEO of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is an extraordinary charity that grants wishes to children with life-threatening illnesses. And I am so glad that he is my guest today on Unstop the Story podcast. 
Frank was presented the Unite for Humanity Celebrity Icon Social Impact Award, joining past recipients like Matthew McConaughey and Morgan Freeman. And what's really fun is then Frank went on to share a stage with Matthew McConaughey at Universal Studios. Oh, Tracy, thank you for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this. I think that we're going to have so much fun today. When you live a long time, you get to do a lot. So, <laughs> so Frank, you have a thousand stories and your stories start from a really young age. So what is your favorite story? Probably, well, outside of creating the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Yeah. But all the events in my life, the people that helped me develop character, integrity, work ethic, that's probably my favorite story. And especially starting, and just very briefly, when I was two years old, my mother divorced my father. She left and had no idea where. Even in later life, she would never tell me. Ages two to six, very happy years with my father, my grandparents, aunt, uncle, cousins. At age six years old, a lady grabbed me off a kindergarten playground. I had no idea who she was. I'm your mother. You're coming with me. And literally kidnapped me because she did not have custody. Yeah. And took me on an adventure for the next several years. Survival was the biggest thing. Oh. Took me first up the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where we lived in a tent in the summertime. Very poor existence. Food was always there, shelter. In the wintertime, very nasty houses, sleeping in cars. And at age 10 years old, ended up in Arizona. And a little town called Sligman, Arizona, up on Route 66, population 500, a Santa Fe division point, railroad division point town ranching area, stockyards, et cetera. And this was the first time we had lived in a town. And at 10 years old, I got a job full-time uh, washing dishes as a dishwasher. And again, this little town of 500. Across the street from this restaurant that we I was working at, yeah. and Jenna was building something. And I just went over there and I said, hi, what are you doing? And he said, well, first of all, what's your name? And I said, my name is Frank. And he said, no, from now on, your name is Poncho <laughs> in Mexican, in Spanish. And he said, grab a hammer, kid. Well, I had no idea what to do because I'd never had any of these father figures in my life. Yeah. And he became my mentor uh, oh. throughout my life, my mentor. Taught me, first of all, the carpentry. But the biggest thing is also got me in a couple of years later in sports. I'd never played any type of sports. We never lived in a town. Got me involved with music. Just, again, all the social life and this and that. The biggest thing was a work ethic. And it's Juan Delgadillo. And he's featured, you mentioned Wishman. <laughs> he's featured in that movie, Wishman, available on Netflix. He is. But, again, just teaching this work ethic. My pal, my partner, my father figure. And when I started seventh grade, my mother said to me, I can't afford you anymore. You're on your own and left. Abandoned me. Oh. Juan, I go to Juan, and what do I do? And this is lessons that I've stayed my whole life now. And this is in the early 50s, and some popular terms now that weren't popular in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, Frank, you've got to learn how to turn those negative events to your life into positive events. What do you mean, Juan? My mother just left me. Where am I going to live? Yeah. I said, I know what's going on, and I've arranged for you to live with the widow Sanchez. And she's going to charge you $20 a week, room and board. Oh. And for the first time, we lived in an old ratty travel trailer. Didn't even have a working bathroom or shower. 
the uh, boys in this little town got to use the Santa Fe men's locker rooms for the showers and so on and bathrooms. And he said, that's positive. For the first time in your life, you're going to have your own room. Second of all, you make $26 a week. She's going to only charge you $20 a week. For the first time, you're going to have $6 of your own. Because every money I ever met went to my mother. Yes. $6 was a lot of money back in the early (laughs) Especially when you've got your lodging, your meals all taken care of. He said, that's a positive. The next positive, she's the best cook in town. Well, there's no argument about that. And then also the other big positive was she had the first television set in Sligman, Arizona. I got to watch Mickey Mouse Club. (laughs) (laughs) And learning those lessons. And another thing he taught me was, Frank, when you can give back. And I said, what do you mean, Juan, give back? The poor people in town are helping me. I don't have a thing. You don't have to have money to give back. You can give back your time. And he gave an example of Mrs. Sanchez before I started living with her. Yeah. He said, look at the front yard. It's full of weeds. Look at her porch. It needs sanded and painted. And she's always bringing you beans and tortillas, trying to help you out. Yeah. Over there, you can clean up that yard. You can sand and paint that porch. You can give back with your time. You don't have to have money. So like I say, Juan became my, my father figure, my mentor. And then I was so fortunate in later years, my coaches in high school, my teachers, Again, all being father figure, the mentors, even going into the military with my commanders, my supervisors saw something maybe special. Yeah. And I was, Tracy, I always wanted to give back to the people that helped me. If I was going to be on the football team and the coaches helped me, I'm going to do the best I can to play for that man just to give back. And even that coaching story with football team, you had a bit of a breakthrough at a really young age there, too. Well, yeah, like I say, high school, I went from this little town of Slake. My mother, in fact, came to me after I graduated eighth grade. She said, I need to move to Prescott. I needed you to get a job. I need you to help me. I can't afford anything. Now, one told me something. We didn't have a close relationship, my mother and I. But he reminded me, she is your mother, and you will respect her. Mm. Especially in the Mexican community where I was raised, family respect is very important. So I did. I went got a job, helped her, and I went to trial for the football team. Yeah. And the coach said, well, you're going to make first string. And But I had to take an aptitude test for school because the school is different from the little town I was in to this town of Prescott. Yeah. And I failed math. And oh. they put you back in eighth grade. And the coach says, no, they're not. <laughs> and walked with me all summer, tutored with me all summer in mathematics. Yeah. And that's just before school started. I passed, was able to go into my freshman year in school. And again, that father figure, that mentor helping me out. So important in life. And then first string because of playing with the big boys back home. Well, yeah. And Seligman, they didn't have, at seventh grade, I started practicing football. They didn't have what they called Pop Warner like now and that. But again, Juan went to the coach and said he would like to learn the game. Now we know he can't play, but can he practice with the team? And the coach says if he can hold up to it, he can well, again, I'm seventh grade. I'm playing with the high school guys. They're knocking me all over the place. So <laughs> I live home every day after practice. But again, I learned the fundamentals of the sport. And the high school kids that are playing with started respecting me because I'm this little guy out there. And I was there tackling them. <laughs> yeah, you were taking it on. But again, just so much respect for the people. Oh, my gosh, Frank. 
you were not stopped by the story of I've been kidnapped. You weren't stopped by the story of I didn't pass math. You weren't stopped by the story of, you know, my mom abandoned me because you had so much respect. And like, I love hearing your passion about wine. And a lot of our listeners, because it's a podcast, they don't get to see you right now. But Folks, you need to know he's sitting here with an incredible cowboy hat on, and he's got some fabulous hats from many police forces in the background in his Wishman book. And so, I mean, it hasn't been a smooth road. And I think people are flabbergasted by Make-A-Wish Foundation and how global it's went because of you. But this backstory that nobody knows about I mean, there's like no roadblock or obstacle insurmountable with you. What's a great challenge in like the whole entirety of your life? I don't know whether you do with Make-A-Wish or you do with your growing up story or your corporate story. I mean, you're certainly a businessman and an officer and a war veteran. Thank you for your service. We're so lucky. What story is a challenge that you think might be relevant to our podcasters today and unstop the story? Life is not all puppies and lollipops. We all have hiccups in our life. And it's what we do with those hiccups, how we handle it. And again, like I told you, my mentor, Juan. Yeah. Whenever you have that negative thing, try and turn that negative into positive. And just briefly on mine, because there's always the backstory for the creation of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Yeah. I was on the motorcycle, Arizona Highway Patrol Motorcycle Tactical Squad. It was a 10-man unit. We worked the whole state of Arizona. One town, two weeks and another, wherever they needed us for heavy traffic, drugs, DUIs, etc. And during that period, it was when a television show called Chips became very popular. Yes. People don't recognize that name. It was the adventures of two California Highway Patrol motorcycle officers, Ponch and John. Very popular, with, especially with the young kids, demographic, seven-year-old on up. And we initially trained with California Highway Patrol. Our motorcycles are identical. Our uniforms are almost identical, except obviously ours in Arizona. <laughs> start going through these towns, usually in two-man team like Chips. All of a sudden, the young kids, hey, Poncho, hey, John, hey, Chip. <laughs> and your nickname was Poncho. Yeah, my nickname is Ponch, Poncho. <laughs> and... I asked our commander, I said, when we have some free time in these little towns, little towns of 1,500, 700, can we go to the local grade school and talk about bicycle safety? And they said, that would be a great PR. Go ahead and do that, which we did. Now, the kids could care less about bicycle safety. They just (laughs) fall all over the motorcycles. And that was great. You know, we're making an impact. That policeman may be a positive image instead of that negative image. That, like mom says sometimes, hey, policeman, if you're not good, I'm going to have them take you away. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then in uh, 1978, a little town called Parker, Arizona, on the Colorado River, California border, town of uh, 67,000, grows to 85,000 because of Easter break. The colleges are massing over to the Colorado River. Our whole 10 man team is there, plus an additional 30 highway patrol officers, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Oh, we got boy. accidents, we got rapes, we got homicides, we got assaults, everything. Oh. I was involved in a high-speed chase with a drunk driver, 85 miles an hour in a 25 zone. Oof. Another drunk driver pulled right in front of me. I hit him broadside at 85. Oh. <laughs> and the whole the crash was spectacular. Oh. And I was pronounced dead at the scene. Oh. 
my partner tried to revive me. He couldn't do it. He called in the code 963, officer killed in the line of duty. Oh. Well, now you and I are talking, so we're having the rest. <laughs> we know there was something wrong, but still. And every police officer ever worked with Tracy all of the years, believe in a higher being, whatever faith or religion it might be. Yeah. You go to work every day, you say a little prayer, please love when you come home. You get home at night, you say a prayer, thank you. And I believe in the guardian angel concept, but not with the wings and the big white gown and everything that God sends somebody to help you out. Yeah. And in this case, it was an off-duty emergency room nurse. Saw the accident, ran over to my partner. Let me revive him. He said, he's dead. We have no pulse now for several minutes. Well, she didn't listen, obviously, because again, we're talking. And for four minutes, performed CPR and brought me back to life. Whoa, four minutes. And, yeah, and if anybody's ever done CPR, that is extremely exhausting. Yeah. You have a two-man team, you're switching back and forth. It is so exhausting. And it took a long time to recover from that accident. I had a massive brain injury, skull fracture, broken bones, missing skin. Oh. And towards the end of the counseling period, both after physical therapy and counseling, make sure my head was okay to go back to work. Yeah. As I said, God spared you for a reason. And now it's up to you to find that reason. Yes. And a few years later, when I found that reason, I'm patrolling up in the mountains of northern Arizona. I get a call from a dispatcher. I need you to find a payphone. Now, people are going to laugh. What's a payphone? Yeah. <laughs> this is before the days of internet and cell phones. <laughs> so I drive 40 miles, find a payphone. I call in. I say, what's up? She says, our department has just been told of a little boy named Chris. He's seven years old. His heroes are Ponch and John from the TV show Chips. Oh. His mother, when I grew up, I want to be a motorcycle officer like Ponch and John. Oh. And unfortunately, he has terminal leukemia. He only has a week or two to live. Oh. And is there any way he could meet one of the motorcycle officers? Because they see where we almost look like the guys from Chips. Yeah. And the department said, yes, we'll arrange that. They asked me to be the officer he met. I mean, this is just God getting all this stuff in motion, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. And they timed it when I'm going to Phoenix. In fact, they picked him up at his hospital in our state police helicopter and flew him to our headquarters building. And they timed it so as I'm approaching the landing zone on a motorcycle, helicopters coming in. And I never met this little boy. I had no idea what to expect. All I see is a big grin plastered against the helicopter window. Uh-huh. It lands. I thought our paramedics are going to help him out. He just came off IVs. He's laying in a hospital bed. Uh-huh. Little red pair of sneakers jumps out, runs a motorcycle. Hi, I'm Chris. Can I get on your motorcycle? Well, of course you can, Chris. Uh-huh. He gets on there and he is laughing and giggling. And he watched Chip so much he knows because our equipment was identical. This is a siren. Can I turn it on? These are the red lights. These are the flashing. What's in your saddlebag? The same as Punch. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's having so much fun oh. and I look at his mother and she's crying and why is she crying here's a little boy then it dawned on me she has her seven year old back he's not laying in a hospital bed with IVs he's running around laughing and giggling like a tickled seven year old oh. and I condensed his story <clears throat> that day Chris became the first and only honorary motorcycle officer in the history of the highway patrol yep. custom made uniform we had made for him a motorcycle helmet, the aviator glasses, his own badge, which is still assigned to him today. But more important to him, his motorcycle wings that we wear on our uniform to make him a motorcycle officer. Oh. Now, unfortunately, a couple days later, Chris passed away. And I was like, 
Maybe those wings helped carry him to heaven. Oh, you know they did. Oh. Commander came to me and said, we have lost a fellow officer. And we just learned Chris is going to be buried in a little town called Kiwani, Illinois. And I want you and your partner to go back and give him a full police funeral. We did. Now, again, the day before internet, but the press is picking up our mission. We landed O'Hare in Chicago. And the press is there to meet us. We've got the major TV networks, radio stations, newsprint, all about our mission. And we started on our long journey, 180 miles down to Kiwani, Illinois. What we didn't know is the press alerted the local media in that area. And they notified Illinois State Police, City Police, County Police of our mission. And all of these agencies met us to give this a full police funeral. Oh, I got goosebumps. (laughs) He was buried in uniform. His grave article reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. Flying home, I just started thinking his little boy had a wish and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea was born, maybe 35,000 feet over Kansas or somewhere, to let's start this foundation, let a child make a wish, and we're going to make it happen. And that was probably the biggest catalyst of the new start of a chapter in my life. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness, Frank. I could listen to you for hours on end. I'm like, just, I've got goosebumps. I've been laughing. I've been crying. I was like, oh, Talk about a journey, your own journey from being stolen to, you know, being independent at 12 to being a grade seven boy playing on a high school team to now almost dying on a highway. And then this opportunity you shared with this little boy the last week of his life that launches into a global organization. There was a guardian angel for you on that highway that day, but you are clearly your guardian angel for me today and a guardian angel for the world with this Make-A-Wish Foundation. Well, thank you, Tracy. And all because of this little boy. Yeah. When we started the foundation, we became official in November of 1980 and granted our first wish in March of 1981. And when we started this foundation, it was for children with terminal illnesses. Leukemia was a distance. Children did not survive that. And about 20 years ago, we changed the mission to children with life-threatening illnesses because through the grace of God and modern medicine, more and more children are surviving. Yes. But because of that one little boy, uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation has grown to 62 chapters in the United States, 55 international chapters on five continents. And like you said, a wish is granted on average of 28 minutes. During our podcast today, somewhere in the world, a child was going to have a wish granted. And we have now gone over a half a million wishes granted, all because of that one little boy. Oh, talk about moment of truth. One story unstopped. And you say, because of that one little boy, and you are the wish man, but I would also say you're the yes man. Because you just never said no at six, at 12. And then after almost dying, you jump out there and you say yes to this wish with the little boy. I mean, you're the yes man wish man. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you have expanded exponentially and you make a difference every 28 minutes now because of this little boy. What's something that our listeners can do to duplicate that success, and that level of making a difference? Well, it's the same for profit world and nonprofit world. It's almost identical. You've got to have a brand that people will accept, that you can expand 
And then how to market that brand is a big thing too. Yeah. And it's so important for any nonprofit or profit to get that brand out there and let people what you're doing. And especially for the nonprofit world, when you've got that brand advance and that, how are you going to give back to your community a little bit? Because that's going to advance your brand. An example, any nonprofit, like you said, I sit on eight different boards right now. Whew. It's nice to get that corporate check from somebody. And maybe there's a little article in the paper. Well, that doesn't advance the brand of the donor. Let's get that great big giant check, right? Let's get all the press involved with a big press conference on that, that we're donating this thing, help give back to the community. Well, community sees that and say, look at that particularly widget manufacturer. Look how they're helping out. That's where I'm going to go shop from now on, that widget manufacturer. Yeah. It's just one of the examples you can do. And then on the nonprofit side, if they're not doing that, do it for them. Get that going. Big pressing. Look at what that widget manufacturer did today to help out whatever the nonprofit might be. Yes. So sort of that positive co-branding, but with a deep sense of authenticity behind it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh, Frank, I want to make sure every single listener visits your website today, gets your book, watches Wishman, and hears about what's coming next. What is it that you would love to close out our podcast with today with our listeners to be able to find you and be excited about your next adventure that's still growing. To find me, wishman1, the number one, dot com is my website, wishman1.com. I'm also on Facebook. Follow me on Facebook. Just Frank Shanklitz on Facebook. And then we're working right now. I don't think I've even told you this. We're working on a new TV series called Wishman Angel Patrol. Oh. Uh, we've been approached by the major networks, our production company. And this is going to be fun. Uh, we're going to give back to the community. If anybody remembers Charlie's Angels, maybe I'm Charlie. I've got such angels working for me. Woo! We're doing, we're going out throughout the United States area and finding areas like California have been devastated by fires, obviously. Yeah. Hurricanes, the floods, veterans who need help, police officers, individuals. And an example, my angel will come back and say, there's a little school that burned down in so-and-so California. We need to rebuild that school. Yeah. We will go in there. We'll get the community involved, celebrities, everything else. Be on my big bus. Go to that area. Rebuild the school. Drive the bus in the sunset. And go to the next town, village, whatever it might be. So we're all set for production. The only thing that's holding us back right now is the COVID because of the fact we can't film a group, large group show. Yeah. Hollywood is starting to film closed sets. But ours is a big open set. We've got to hold off until. COVID is over. So just watch for that Wishman Angel Patrol. We'll watch for Wishman Angel Patrol. And when yeah. you're ready for Canada, there's an angel right here that would love to support you any way I can in Canada. And then again, the theme of our movie, the message of the movie is everyone can be a hero. Yeah. If someone needs help, try and help them. Remember, it's not always money, just times your time. That's my message. Everyone can be a hero. Thank you for joining us, Frank, at Unstop the Story. You, too, can be a hero like our magical Frank. Wishman1.com. Be sure to check him out. I'm tipping my hat to you, Tracy. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show? 
I'd love if you could share it with someone you think will find it valuable or inspiring. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to see a live and unedited version of this full interview, you can. Subscribe for all access at unstoppabletracy.com slash interviews, and you'll gain instant access to the whole catalog for free.